Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 24th of February with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I spoke with Tom Thackeray, Director of Decarbonisation at the Confederation of British Industry, about the role of business in driving the net zero agenda and the clear opportunities for companies that are leading the way. And earlier this week, I caught up with my colleague Hannah Halmari to find out how the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event in Amsterdam this April is shaping up. A quick mention of the next Innovation Forum webinar, where we're going to be having an open debate on what needs to be done to ensure the voluntary carbon markets work for business. There have been some serious charges levelled recently concerning the veracity of carbon credit certification, and we'll be debunking what needs to be debunked and look at what the carbon markets need to do to ensure companies can be certain about the role of verified emissions reduction credits in their own net zero planning. Joining me will be the CEO of carbon credit certifying body, Vera, alongside senior representatives of the UK's Climate Change Committee and Solvera. There's a link to register for this free webinar in the podcast description and I do hope you can join us at 2pm UK time on Wednesday the 1st of March. This webinar is the first in a new series where we'll be debating the big sustainable business topics and coming up we'll be talking about the future of meat alternatives and the intended consequences of blanket deforestation bans. But that's all to come. First though it's time for some sustainable business news. Every two years, Global Canopy releases its Forest 500 report, which tracks the policies and performance of the top 350 most influential companies and 150 financial institutions with links to deforestation in operations, supply chains or investments. The latest findings show progress, but not enough. Out of 350, 109 of the companies with the greatest influence on or exposure to tropical deforestation risks in their supply chains don't have any deforestation commitments for the commodities they source. Of the 150 companies with a deforestation commitment for the commodities they source, only half are monitoring their suppliers or sourcing regions in line with those commitments. In terms of human rights, despite the fact that they are linked to deforestation, none of the companies assessed by Global Canopy meet the requirements for all human rights commitments alongside deforestation commitments for all the commodities to which they are exposed. In terms of the financial institutions, only 16 have comprehensive commodity deforestation policies in place and 92 have no deforestation policy covering their lending and investments. Progress in human rights is also slow. Only 41 out of 150 have any free prior and informed consent or FPIC policies for at least one commodity to which they're exposed. In conclusion, Global Canopy calls for significant progress on commitments and policy by 2025 and a drive to convert promises into action. The headline from the International Energy Agency's latest global methane tracker is a call on the oil and gas sector to act on cutting emissions, which reached levels only just below all-time records in 2022, despite international commitments for rapid cuts this decade made over the past few years. The IEA attributes one-third of the man-made rise in global temperatures to methane, which is, of course, a significantly more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. While agriculture is the greatest source of atmospheric methane, the IEA targets the 40% coming from the energy sector, 70% of which could be cut using existing technology such as leak detection and repair and upgrading equipment. The IEA identifies other easy wins such as the elimination of flaring and venting of methane that can have significant impact. The value of capturing much of this gas can exceed the costs of the mitigating measures, the agency says. Indicating perhaps how diets are changing, students at the University of Cambridge in the UK have voted to back a move towards all vegan menus at the catering outlets serviced by the university. The Cambridge Students' Union vote was backed by 72% of students who took part and mandates union representatives to work with the university to transition to fully plant-based menus in response to the climate and biodiversity crises. The Students' Union motion does not apply, however, to the university's 31 colleges. 
The Innovation Forum team is working hard in developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food and business and climate action on Scope 3 emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. On the 25th and 26th of April, we'll be holding the next in our Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference series in Amsterdam. To find out more, earlier this week I caught up with the conference director, Hannah Hamari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. Good to be back. So the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event, 25th, 26th April in Amsterdam. Why don't you give us a quick reminder of this year's format for the event? So this is a two-day conference, which we're hosting in person. So we're very excited for that. And over the two days, you can expect a variety of panel discussions and quickfire Q&A sessions where we address the main social and environmental issues in the apparel and textile supply chains. And as usual, we'll run the entire conference under Chatham House rule and everything will be discussion based. So no PowerPoints and no scripts. Good point, the table of lots of different styles of session just to keep things interesting. Some longer, some shorter, some Q&A, some plenaries, some workshop style. So lots of different things to keep things moving along and keep up the pace. Who are we planning the event for, Hannah? The conference is really for anyone and everyone interested in building more sustainable and resilient apparel and textile supply chains. We're going to be bringing together just over 300 key stakeholders from across the industry. We typically have senior representatives joining from apparel brands, suppliers, NGOs, investors, policymakers, and so on. We've been working on the event for some time now. What have been the issues emerging in the apparel sector as you've been working on the conference? The agenda covers a range of environmental and social issues in the industries. We have over 25 sessions and some of the key themes that we're focusing on are climate. We'll be looking at how brands can make real progress on net zero goals and reduce scope three emissions. We're looking at circular business models, so specifically how these can be scaled to ensure both profitability and sustainability. We deep dive into the upcoming EU legislations, how brands can prepare for the upcoming EU legislation on both mandatory human rights due diligence as well as around green claims. And finally, we also dive into consumer engagement. So we'll be discussing how brands can authentically communicate sustainability with consumers. So there's some really interesting emerging issues there. Looking forward to talking about them at the event. Any new sessions that you've added to the agenda recently? Yes, Ian. So we've added a new session called The Elephant in the Room, How Brands Can Overcome the Overproduction Problem. So in this session, we'll be debating the industry's overproduction problem and discuss how a shift in business models could help deliver on climate goals, increase efficiencies throughout the supply chain, as well as reduce costs. I'm looking forward to that one. How about any new panelists who's recently confirmed that they're going to be joining us? We've now confirmed almost up to 50 speakers. So the panels are filling up very quickly. We've recently confirmed speakers from Caring, Social and Labour Convergence Programme, Nanushka, Otto Group, the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and many more. So I encourage everyone to go check out the website and have a look at the full speakers list. So obviously all the panellists and speakers are on the conference website. So Hannah, how can our listeners get involved? We currently have an early bird discount in place until Friday the 24th of February. So you'll be saving 300 euro on your ticket if you book before then. But we're going to extend this for our podcast listeners until Wednesday, the 1st of March. So you have a little bit more time to book. So just use the discount code podcast at the checkout to apply that. And are there any sponsorship opportunities still available? We still have a couple of sponsored opportunities remaining. So just feel free to get in touch with me or my colleague Gabby on that. And similarly, if you want any more information on group booking discounts, just feel free to shoot me an email. 
But important to remember, I guess, that podcast listeners use the discount code PODCAST when you check out for your tickets and you can take advantage of the €300 Euro discount through to close of business on the Wednesday, the 1st of March. Hannah, looking forward to the event. It'll come around very quickly. Certainly will. Thanks, Ian. A few days ago, I spoke with Tom Thackeray, Decarbonisation Director at the Confederation of British Industry, CBI, about the opportunities for business in the race to net zero. We also talked about the role of government and decision making and the need for sustained progress. UK has a legally binding commitment to net zero economy by 2050. What's the role of business to achieve this, Tom? Business is just all over the responsibility for achieving the net zero target. Not only are they responsible for a good proportion of those emissions, but indirectly they're responsible too. Later on today, I will take the train into the CBI's offices in London from where I live in Kent. That has an emissions impact, which is my personal emissions. But obviously the purpose I'm doing that for is for a business purpose. And you can see that everything that we do, all the products we consume, all the services we consume, there's a business link to all of that. Historically, obviously, businesses have been responsible for a large amount of carbon emissions as well in the past. If one of my children has a big old play in their room and makes a big mess, they're responsible for cleaning that up. And I think there's also that moral responsibility in business in that we've made the mess. We need to clean it up. Members of the CBI buy into that. That's the purpose-based responsibility. I think it's the most efficient way of getting to net zero is by having businesses and markets involved. If you unleash the power of competition, we've already seen the impact that that's had in terms of bringing down the cost of technologies and making those technologies better, more accessible to consumers and doing it in the best way. With a reduced role of business, you probably still get to net zero, probably over a longer time and probably at higher cost. So it's the most efficient way of doing it. So businesses are up for that challenge, I think. What does the CBI want from government to allow this to happen? It's uncontroversial to say that there needs to be a partnership between public and private sectors to make it happen. If you just look at the investment required, the UK's government is advised by the Committee on Climate Change on what needs to happen to get to net zero. They've suggested or estimated that by 2030, we'll need to be investing around £50 billion a year on the transition. And currently, we're investing around a fifth of that. That's a huge upscale in just the amount of money that we need to be investing in infrastructure and services and products, which are going to get us to net zero. And most of that is going to come from the private sector. And obviously, private capital has choices where it's deployed. And in loads of ways, the government is going to have a bearing on the choices that private investors make through the tax landscape, through where the public sector spends its money, through the regulatory environment that they put in place government really can make a difference to where and when businesses spend their money. And it's important to note there that we're not doing this alone. We are competing in a global race to establish these green technologies that are going to get there. So if you look across the pond to the US now, we're seeing the introduction of some really, really generous tax incentives to help businesses invest in some green technologies, whether that's batteries for electric vehicles, wind turbines, or hydrogen production across the piece. That is a massive game-changing play, which is taking place in the US now. Politicians in the EU are responding in type, you know, they're loosening the rules around state aid to enable national governments to spend more money to crowd in private investment. So you can see competitors 
are really upping their game to crowd in that private investment. And it's important that the UK doesn't rest on its laurels and steps up and competes on that. And for the members that I talk to, the businesses I talk to, there's a few things that matter. So, you know, it's about leadership and signaling. And I think the UK has done a decent job in terms of that global signaling in the past. You know, Boris Johnson, for his faults, was a massive advocate of net zero and the UK playing a leading role in that. The fact that the UK hosted COP26 and had established its own net zero strategy in advance of that. It's important for businesses that they see that they see politicians being out on the public stage and saying this is something that we believe in and that matters to us. And then you've obviously got to have policies to back it up. You've got to have a competitive tax regime. I don't think we're going to spend as much as the US, for example. We're probably not going to spend as much as many European countries, but we can compete on other things. We can compete on the stability of our tax base. We can compete on the business friendliness of our regulation. We need to look at it in a holistic way. And we just need to have a wider supportive business environment through, you know, making sure that we've got the supply chains there and the skills and all of that kind of thing that CBI bangs on about <laughs> pretty often. Finally, in terms of what the government is there to do, businesses can't do this alone, obviously, because the government provides that democratic mandate for action. While the UK has done really well at cutting emissions over the last few years, a lot of that has taken place from the power sector. You know, it's, it's about taking all of our grids, moving to gas and getting more renewables on the system. And that's worked pretty well. But it's gone unnoticed by much of the public. It's just a few pennies on your energy bill. And now we're talking about changing the car that you drive, changing the way that you heat your home. And that is much more intrusive. And it's very important that you've got a democratic mandate for doing those types of things, which is why government needs to, and that's local government as well as central government. That's why we need to work together with businesses to get that done. Business is going to drive this. Business needs the right incentives, perhaps. So what are the strengths in the UK that you think can be exploited better on the transition to net zero? I think the first strength is that we've got a great track record. We're one of a few countries who have made substantial inroads in cutting emissions through our power supply mainly. And we've decoupled emissions reduction from economic growth. So since 1990, we've been reducing emissions. Economic growth has still been going up. That is a huge thing that we can point to. We're getting this right. Slightly more boring, perhaps, sort of the institutions and policy making processes that we have in the UK are world leading, I'd argue. We passed the Climate Change Act more than a decade ago which established our initial target before we set the net zero target, which was initially an 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, now upgraded to the net zero target. And we have a great institutional infrastructure around that. So we have the Climate Change Committee, which is an independent group reporting annually to Parliament, holding the government's feet to the fire on meeting carbon budgets. The fact that we have that really well-regarded institution recommending where there are gaps in the government's programme, pushing them to go further and faster, I think has been fundamentally important. We've also had a lot of policy innovation in the UK, and we've really built on the fact that we are welcoming of private investment to make the best of our transition. And, and the example I'd give is through the deployment of renewables, through the what's called the contracts for difference model, which is essentially inviting proposers of renewables projects to bid against each other to produce that power at the lowest price. And we can see the price of wind turbines, whether that's onshore or offshore, has dropped like a stone. In a very small space of time, that price has dropped like a stone. It's confounded all expectations about what was possible there. And that's through the design of that policy. You know, the, the contracts for difference has been incredibly successful. But I think we can use that much more. You know, we can use it for the development of the hydrogen economy, 
We can use it for the establishment of carbon capture and storage. We can use it potentially for things like sustainable aviation fuels in the future. So are you frustrated then that the UK energy market isn't reforming? Because we're still paying domestically energy prices based on the cost of energy as if it was being produced by gas. But as you say, the cost of renewable energy has dropped significantly, but no domestic consumers are seeing the benefits of that. All we're seeing is energy prices going up. How frustrated are you that we haven't had the necessary energy market reform? It's not just consumers that are paying those costs, but obviously businesses as well. You know, it's basically from by the last molecule that you need to balance the system. And because we don't have 100% renewables, obviously the last molecule tends to be provided by gas and gases. At the moment, a huge amount more expensive than renewables. It's right that we need to reform the system, a system that enables both businesses and consumers to benefit from the lower cost of renewables, given they have dropped like a stone, like I, like I said previously, is the right way to go. You see sort of spats on Twitter going on where someone says the hugely original thing, but the wind doesn't blow all the time and the sun doesn't shine all the time. Well, of course, that's true. You know, advocates for renewables realise that you need storage to go alongside it. And there's a cost of that storage, which needs to be factored in. You need to do it carefully and make sure that businesses who have invested in certain forms of power under certain pretenses are not disadvantaged or you don't spook investors by changing the rules of the game midway through the match. But absolutely, no, I do agree. There's a potential to really recognise the benefit. And by doing that, you create an additional incentive to produce more power that way and really up our game in terms of the pace of delivery. So to make the transitions that are necessary that we've been talking about in the UK and elsewhere, clearly we need technologies that don't yet exist. A lot of this has got to be about innovation. What do we need to do to encourage this necessary innovation? I somewhat disagree with the pretext of the question. Not that innovation is not important. I agree that there needs to be tons of innovation in this space. But I think for the majority of emissions, most of the technologies are known that are going to eradicate those emissions and get us to close to net zero. So if you look at the power sector, for example, in January this year, we had nearly 90% of our electricity coming from zero carbon sources, which is a reason to be really proud and enthusiastic about what we've achieved already there. And we know that there's a hell of a lot more capacity coming on in terms of zero carbon power over the years ahead. And we've already talked about storage to deal with the intermittency that that brings, but there is a solution there. For transport, we've seen a massive expansion of electric vehicles just in the last couple of years, even while car sales have not been going great guns. The electric vehicle sales have been pretty strong. There are things that we need to do in terms of the charging infrastructure and making sure that we capture the economic value associated with batteries in the UK. There's plenty that we need to do there. In terms of what is the route forward, I think there's very little debate now about electric vehicles being you know, primarily where we'll be at. We've got the phase-out dates for petrol and diesel vehicles to back that up. And then for the built environment, we know that there are a range of technologies that are going to be used from heat pumps in a lot of places, heat networks in some places, and possibly hydrogen in others. Those are technologies that exist now, are working and can be deployed at scale. So it's a deployment problem that we have there and it's politically difficult. I don't underplay the challenge with decarbonising heat in homes, but it's more of a deployment challenge again rather than a technology challenge. Where innovation is going to help us though is doing this efficiently and at the lowest cost. Take the grid for example. We need a system where the grid is responsive to surges in demand so that we're using electricity much more effectively and enables things like the electric vehicle that's plugged in at your home to help power your home for parts of the day, for example. There's massive amounts of innovation that can come in through the deployment of smart grids. So yeah, a huge amount of innovation there to play for. 
there are more sort of whizzy technologies that might come forward in the future that have a role to play, things like nuclear fusion. We're sort of in the early stage of exploring that. And I'm tremendously excited about it. You're sort of seeing the results of these trials that are going ahead, where it's creating almost the potential for abundant energy at very little cost. Sounds amazing, but that's not going to come on stream for a little while. I am optimistic about the UK's potential to, to capture some of those markets. You know, I've been to around Oxford University, I've seen the spin-out companies that are, are researching those kind of technologies. And I come away from those meetings feeling absolutely jazzed at the prospect of the UK leading in these things. And let's be clear, that's a huge export opportunity for the UK as well. Being able to build on the prowess that we have in our research and science institutions to really scale up those startups that are in existence now is a massive opportunity for the UK. Interesting you mentioned nuclear fusion. It does feel a little bit, and perhaps I'm being cynical, uh, that nuclear fusion is the future and it always will be, because I can remember back 30 years ago they were talking about nuclear fusion being the answer to all our problems. Let's see, it would be great if it comes along. I mean, I guess there are some areas where we do need technology advances. I mean, if we're going to use hydrogen in aviation, for example, that technology isn't there yet. So there are still the innovations that need to be moved forward. But as you say, the solutions are on the horizon, perhaps. Do you feel a bit of a sense of frustration sometimes? We talked about governments and what they can do to help, that sometimes we get just wrong decision making, it gets in the way of all the progress that we've been talking about. You know, we're taking the example of energy security and efficiency, rather than that real drive to develop renewables and storage at real scale, which could be done quickly, alongside rapid rollout of insulation for domestic and business properties. I mean, they'll give us the improvements quickest, but we get bogged down in talking about large scale carbon and nuclear energy projects that won't come on stream for many years and be obsolete when they do. Action is required that brings benefits now. Do you get that frustration? Yeah, I am often hugely frustrated. And I think, you know, with the energy crisis, it was an invitation almost for some of these nefarious types to come out of the woodwork and sort of spread misinformation about what we needed to do, spread misinformation about the causes of the crisis. And that's someone who's passionate about this stuff, which I am, my team is. I think that's, you know, it's always really difficult for us to read. And we, you know, we're trying to work with politicians to get them focused on the things that make the biggest difference in the shortest amount of time. Yeah, and I sort of agree with your analysis there about fast deployment of renewables, which are cheap, and particularly onshore wind, for example, or solar can be deployed relatively quickly. The need to deploy energy efficiency and to, to invest in energy efficiency, particularly when the government is having to step in to subsidise people's bills, it's self-interest for them to reduce the amount that they're exposed to by enabling people to use less energy. Energy efficiency is a big one which they need to do more on and business can help with. Where I sit in my position, I've always got to be conscious about why government might not be acting in, in that way. You know, They're not trying to be difficult. They're not trying to do things which are counter to net zero, but they have other pressures on them. Take energy efficiency, for example. We are littered with failed schemes when it comes to energy efficiency, whether that's the, the Green Homes Grant or things that came before it. So government have had their fingers burned and just once bitten twice shy to a certain extent on that. Also, it's not really a sexy thing that they could sort of stand in front of a great piece of infrastructure in, in a hard hat and have a photo opportunity with it. And I think there is a somewhat of an ideological view from a conservative government in particular that an Englishman's house or a British person's house is their castle and they don't want to tell them what to do with their home. And I think there's sort of the hardest bit where you've got to overcome an ideological position which is counter to what needs to happen. So yeah, frustration overall, but in my role it's identifying why they might not be acting in the way that we are, hoping that they will and trying to get the best arguments to shift that opinion. Let's just think about the ideology point for a second then. What evidence are you seeing that 
UK business as a whole then is recognising these opportunities, the opportunities that a net zero future will bring. I think we are, but do you agree that we are past the why we have to do this and now firmly working on the how in terms of the business approach? Yeah, definitely. Businesses are onto this in a big way. I already mentioned the moral responsibility that they feel or many of the business leaders that I speak to feel. There's a temptation to talk about business as a sort of amorphous being, but businesses are essentially people. Everyone watches the impact of extreme weather events happening around the world. You saw the floods in Pakistan. How can you not be moved by the human impact of that? And I think business leaders want to act in that way. From a business perspective, they have risks associated with extreme weather events and their insurers will be telling them to pay attention to those risks. On the other side of things, there's no need to be hair-shirted about this. For many businesses, there's a lot of self-interest. There's economic opportunity associated with the transition that they see. They can tap into Generation Z demand for low-carbon products. They can attract and retain staff more effectively if you've got a good story to tell when it comes to low-carbon activities. Their investors, I think finance has moved in a massive way over the last few years in terms of the demands that they're having on the companies that they invest in. And yet, frankly, it's cheaper. If you're upgrading a fleet of light vans, for example, it's cheaper to get the electric vehicle version rather than the fossil fuel version today. Businesses are acting in self-interest and for moral responsibility. You've seen loads of companies headquartered in the UK signing up to things like their own net zero targets for 2050 or before, and they're up for it. So it does become the question of how, and there are huge challenges for many businesses in actually getting it done, actually achieving their emissions reduction targets. Sometimes that's about the technology to deploy. You know, you mentioned the aviation sector where it's challenging to build a zero emission aircraft engine at the moment. Sometimes businesses still struggle, I think, sometimes with the business case for the zero carbon investments. So that's where the government can step in and sort of level the playing field to make them more attractive. I think sometimes businesses are worried about being too overt with their activities in this area because there is a growing army of activists who are ready to accuse people of greenwashing if they can't substantiate what they're saying they should do. And I think that's that's a good thing. Businesses need to be held to account. But that does some some businesses I speak to are sort of a bit trepidatious about what they should do and how they should talk about it. I think the biggest barrier, though, in the how is just pure organisational change stuff. The CEO or the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer, sets the net zero target. But how does it embed itself in your HR policies or your procurement policies or your finance team? It's that that businesses struggle with. Changing the incentives within a business is a hard thing to do. Some businesses are doing it successfully and others are, are struggling with it. Obviously, there's going to be a lot to do over the coming decades. And to achieve all the things we talked about, there needs to be a process of continued and sustained progress. Companies have got 2050 net zero targets, but also many put in 2030, some 2025. What is the evidence that you're going to be looking for over the coming years that the progress is being achieved at the scale and pace necessary? I'm going to be looking at the carbon budgets for the UK as a whole. We have sort of periodical chunks of time where we have an amount of carbon that we're allowed to emit and the Climate Change Committee monitors UK's progress against those carbon budgets and steps in to advise the government where we're likely to miss those targets. So through the administrative processes that I described earlier, I think we do have a good setup for monitoring. For businesses who are proposing these green technologies, I think we've done a good job at setting out the outcome. So we want 40 gigawatts or 50 gigawatts of offshore wind deployed by 2030, for example. 
I think what we sometimes struggle to get the governments to really understand is, well, working back from that, that means that we need the auction to be next year. We need to have contracts the year after. You know, the milestones on the way are sometimes not understood and we don't see that urgency of getting the things in place, the building blocks in place that are going to enable the massive action that we need to see. We've made good use of regulations, actually, and, and particularly on the electric vehicle side, by having that phase-out date for petrol and diesel engines. You've got that long leads time where businesses have a chance to look to the future and can move investment in a way which is not disruptive and they can plan for. The chief executive of the Climate Change Committee talks about NIMTO regulation, which is not in my term of office regulation, which enables a bit of political space, I suppose, for, for politicians to act. It's worth saying, you know, we, we only have, 2050 seems a long way away, but it's, in business terms, it's only a few investment cycles, depending on the industry in question. You need the regulations in place ahead of time to change behaviours in time. One thing that I would say I hope we are monitoring in terms of milestones is just the investment side of things as well. I think we talk a lot about emissions reduction and hitting the net zero target, which obviously we need to do. I would like to do that in a way which helps bring prosperity to the UK, where we're capitalising on the economic opportunities associated with it so that you know UK firms are exporting technologies to the rest of the world so that we are sort of creating jobs helping to level up the economy. I don't think we are monitoring that stuff in as proactive a way as we should be. And we need a proper strategy which goes around the economic opportunity as well as this, the emissions reduction side of things, which I think is well covered. As I said, there's an awful lot to do, but clearly there's lots of things that we can look out for over the coming years that will demonstrate that business is making the progress that's necessary. But for now, Tom Thackeray from the CBI, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ian. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is a place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews and to sign up for next week's Carbon Debate webinar on Wednesday 1st of March at 2pm UK time. And don't forget to register now to attend the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference this April in Amsterdam and take advantage of the €300 Euro discount on passes. As we mentioned earlier, use the discount code PODCAST at the checkout and you can take extended advantage of the offer until 1st of March next week. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next time, goodbye.